Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you on Washington's birthday. Uh, I'm not buying into this President's Day stuff. It's not actually official. Uh, it is Washington's birthday today, but we will talk about a lot of the presidents today. Hope you're having a good one out there. And as always, we've got a lot of ground to cover in the fastest 60 minutes in radio. So stay with us here. We're going to help you slow things down a little bit. We'll divide the rage from the reason and help you make the news make sense on a holiday weekend. And as I said, hopefully you've uh, had a good one. As always, I want to know what's on your mind today. Where are you out and about in the great state of Utah? Give us a uh, message on our uh, Utah Community Credit Union text line, 57500. 57500, Utah Community Credit Union, KSL text line. Join us today in the conversation. And uh, the big news buzzing over the weekend uh, as it relates to presidents uh, is the continued uh, drama in the Democratic uh, debate and run up to see who the nominee is going to be for the Democrats. Uh, We know that Mayor Pete Buttigieg will make an appearance here in Utah today, later on tonight. He will be here in the Beehive State. We'll have a chance to uh, connect with him briefly as he zips in and out of Utah while he continues to focus on uh, Nevada, which is where every... One is uh, trying to get to right now. They will have their caucus uh, coming up on Saturday this week, and uh, that should give some really interesting indications in terms of where things are going next. Uh, A lot of the uh, back and forth over the weekend was really centered in Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, I think everyone has realized that he is going to be a force in this election, and so his competitors, uh, remember, he has not competed in any of the early states, uh, skipped Iowa, skipped New Hampshire. Uh, he will also skip Nevada and South Carolina with a focus on Super Tuesday is uh, where Mayor Bloomberg is trying to put all of his money. And when I say put his money, it's really not that much. There was actually a, a really interesting uh, analogy. They They looked at how much money Mayor Bloomberg has spent, hundreds of millions of dollars, more than the entire field combined in terms of ads. And then they equated it to how much money that represented in his uh, billions and billions that that he is worth. And they, they basically estimated that it, it cost him about what it would cost the rest of us to buy a cheese pizza and a pepperoni pizza from Domino's. <laughs> that is otherworldly in terms of money. So while he is spending a lot, apparently it's only like 
buying a little uh, takeout order from Domino's for, for Mr. Bloomberg. Uh, but that has led a lot of his competitors to say that he's trying to buy the election, that he's uh, trying to change the dynamic of the Democratic Party by not really having a conversation with the people or with the media, but uh, just doing it through the airwaves. And uh, Bernie Sanders was the first to, to really take on Mayor Bloomberg over the weekend. And uh, here's what he had to say. Regardless of how much money a multi-billionaire candidate is willing to spend on his election, we will not create the energy and excitement we need to defeat Donald Trump if that candidate pursued, advocated for, and enacted racist policies like stop and frisk, which caused communities of color in his city to live in fear. All right, that's uh, Bernie Sanders taking on uh, Mayor Bloomberg, again, talking about the uh, the wealth. And, of course, for Bernie Sanders, he's the natural foil there as a uh, billionaire. Bernie likes to, to call out the billionaires often, and so this fits right into to his mantra there. I do think there's one interesting component uh, to that, and that is this excitement factor uh, that you really do have to capture if you're going to be a nominee and whether that's a nominee for a, a local office, whether that's a congressional office, a gubernatorial race, whatever it might be, uh, there is this element of you have to get the electorate excited. And Bernie Sanders is really hitting Mayor Bloomberg now to say that he he cannot do that. He is not going to excite the electorate in a way that will help Democrats defeat President Trump uh, come fall. I want to get one more uh, piece from Bernie Sanders. He's, he was uh, with Anderson Cooper on Sunday and said this. I think when people understand that in our democratic society, we have a, an individual worth some $60 billion who in an unprecedented way, Anderson, is literally trying to buy the elections. He didn't compete in Iowa, where all the democratic candidates did, nor in New Hampshire, nor in Nevada, nor in South Carolina. He didn't hold town meetings. He didn't talk to people, answer questions. All he did is take a small part of his $60 billion, put it into TV commercials, and I guess that can get your votes. Okay. Uh, again, that's uh, Bernie Sanders taking on Mayor Bloomberg and his uh, big-time spending on advertising in uh, the various, uh, really, Super Tuesdays, where he's, he is focused, uh, coming up on March 3rd. Now, I, I want to break something down because there there is a component to what uh, Bernie Sanders that is, is saying that is very true as it comes to politics. And we actually talked about this uh, last week. Remember uh, that uh, the lieutenant governor, Spencer Cox, was the first person to turn in signatures to get his name on the ballot uh, for the June 30th primary on the Republican side. And he's one of the first who has been able to do that without uh, buying those signatures. In other words, without uh, engaging and paying for a signature gathering company to go out and get those signatures. So he did this with an all volunteer army. Uh, and that's a uh, that to me, that's the most significant thing. Getting on the ballot. That's that's fine. That's that's a good thing. But the fact that he was able to do it with volunteers uh, tells me something more. And I think this is, will be the problem. I actually think this was a problem that Mitt Romney had in 2012 uh, with with his campaign because nobody felt like they were needed. No one felt like if they didn't do their part uh, that everything was going to collapse around them. 
And so that's, I think, what Mayor Bloomberg will will have to see is will people feel invested in his candidacy? Because if there has to be a reason. You know, if people say, oh, well, you know, he's rich, he has this massive organization, he's spending all this money. Why does he need me, John Doe, in Atlanta to go pound a yard sign or to show up at a rally? Because one of the the real critical pieces of our politics is that everybody wants to be part of a winning story. Everybody wants to be connected to something bigger than themselves. And so if you have a candidacy that is really just kind of bought and paid for uh, without a lot of need for a grassroots volunteer effort, I actually agree with Bernie Sanders on this one. I think it will be difficult to sustain uh, if people don't really feel invested in someone like Mayor Bloomberg, uh, which leads to a host of other questions. There were uh, other rumblings over the weekend about him choosing Hillary Clinton to be his running mate, which sparked off all kinds of uh, things on social media as to whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I don't think that helps Mayor Bloomberg at all, and uh, don't I just don't see that happening. Uh, I'm going to talk about that with my good friend Neil Cavuto on uh, Fox Business News a little later on this afternoon. Uh, because I just don't think she's going to help uh, unite anyone. And again, creating that idea that you are needed. And it's the, it's the one thing, it's the one rule of politics, again, whether that's local, whether that's national, is can you help people feel like they are part of the story? And, and as we're talking about presidents today, uh, if you look at the great presidents throughout history on both sides of the political aisle, It's those who had the ability to challenge the American people and then invite them to be part of something. Kennedy did that. Reagan did that. Uh, You can go back, you know, through all the different components. and, And when the American people feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves, when they are asked to do something. So that's my question for Mayor Bloomberg is, will he ask the American people to do something? Will he engage them? Uh, And now that he's going to get tested, he's going to get scrutinized, it'll be really interesting to see uh, where those billions of dollars go, uh, if it's just more advertising, or if he really tries to build something from the ground up. Uh, Really fascinating. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside. When we come back, uh, Scott Rasmussen, independent pollster, will talk to us a little bit about uh, the founding and uh, how this all continues to play out on a very special edition of Inside Sources. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News. Great to be with you on Inside Sources on a holiday today and very pleased. We're going to go right at it here. We've got uh, independent pollster Scott Rasmussen on the line with us. Scott, uh, happy Washington's birthday today because i'm I, i'm with you i'm not buying into this is actually president's day well that's right you know my uh, my number of the day today said that there are zero presidents whose birthday we celebrate today uh, 
Uh, you know, officially, this is still, according to the federal government, George Washington's birthday, and that's where it began a long time ago. But back in 1968, when they set all the holidays, they tried to create more three-day weekends. They made this holiday, the third uh, uh, Monday in February. So it falls kind of between Lincoln's and, and Washington's birthday. So a lot of people thought it was to celebrate both. And then retailers got in the act and began to call it President's Day. Uh, yeah, President's Day, make big President's Day sales. But in fact, officially, it's still George Washington's birthday. That's right. Even though his official birthday is the 22nd of February, uh, this is as close as we're going to get because the, the federal workers need a three-day a three weekend, which you and I clearly you know, do not understand what that means. <laughs> well, obviously, we're failing at that. Uh, and I should also point out, you know, that a lot, there were a lot of these holidays were state holidays for a long time right. before, and they grew up in the culture. Uh, George Washington's birthday was actually first celebrated the year after he passed away. Mm. Uh, so it was going on a long time before it became an official holiday. And by the time I was in elementary school, we didn't get a three-day weekend, but we actually got two presidents' birthdays off in February, wow. in both Lincoln and Washington. <laughs> so, you know, that was a good deal. Those were that, those were the days, right? <laughs> Uh, well, hey, I want to shift gears now uh, and talk a little bit about uh, uh, an upcoming column you have. You've been uh, working with the Deseret News and uh, also with the uh, Deseret News and the Hinkley Institute on some polling. Uh, but your your series that you've been doing in your columns, uh, as you've been going through the Federalist Papers, uh, you, you went and kind of took on the progressives uh, last week. Uh, this week, you're going to give the uh, conservatives a few things to think about as it relates to limited government. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, one of the great uh, misconceptions that Americans have today is that the Constitution was written to place limits on government. Um, and by the way, part of that comes because of the progressive movement. The progressive movement for the last century and a half had been, has been saying uh, there's just too many limits. We need a more powerful government. We need to get by these constraints. So people began to think naturally that you know, the opposing view was a desire for limited government. But actually, the people who drafted the Constitution, the people who advocated for it and made sure it got passed, people like James Madison and, and Alexander Hamilton, they were the big government types in their era. Um, and it's really important that if we're going to learn from them that we, we kind of understand their role. Uh, the big debate of 1787 was not about a theoretical form of government. It was, how do we keep the union together? Right. And to a lot of people, uh, they thought we have to have a more powerful central government, and that's what the Constitution was. Uh, there were a lot of other people around the country who were horrified at that notion, and uh, while the Constitution is revered today, it struggled to get ratified by the states, and eventually the big government types had to make a concession to win over some wavering voters, and the concession was to pass what we now know as the Bill of Rights, one of the greatest limitations on government uh, power you know, ever written and, and really a powerful defender of our rights today. Yeah, let's break that down just a little bit because uh, you, you, you go through and you, you talk about Hamilton. Hamilton was kind of the extremist on this one in, in terms of uh, what the government should and shouldn't be doing. And then uh, Madison kind of tweaked it and uh, massaged it back in. And then, as you said, ultimately leading – uh, to the the Great Compromise, which really was around the Bill of Rights. Yeah, I mean the the compromise it did show it did get the uh, it did get a bigger, more powerful central government by passing the Constitution, ratifying the Constitution. But the Bill of Rights balanced it out a little bit. But to go back to Hamilton, uh, look, this was a man who gave a long speech 
uh, on the floor of the Constitutional Convention, he explained that he thought senators and the president should be serving for life. Once you get into that office, you, you just stay there. And he thought the governors of the state should be appointed by the federal government. I can't imagine anybody in Utah being excited about Washington picking your governor. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, Hamilton said things like uh, when it comes to, he called it the common defense, we would call it national security. Uh, the government's power ought to exist without limitation. And the same must also be the case in respect to commerce. This was a big government guy. Uh, now, you know, he was, his over-the-top ideas were never really seriously considered by the rest of the convention. James Madison, uh, who's known as the father of the Constitution, did most of the drafting of it. Uh, he recognized that we, he, he wanted a more powerful government, a central government, um, but he knew there had to be some checks and balances and constraints, and so he drafted what he thought was a perfect plan. And by the way, he too opposed the Bill of Rights. Now, that may be because he wrote the Constitution and didn't want anybody. <laughs> he thought to it was right, yeah. <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, he didn't think it was necessary. Uh, eventually, there was this thing called voters. They, were, they weren't convinced to ratify the Constitution. When James Madison actually ran for the, in the very first congressional election under the Constitution, um, he was in for the fight of his life, and he had to promise to support the Bill of Rights, or else he wouldn't have gotten elected. Uh, and so eventually this compromise came to be. But something else that I'd like to point out about that time, um, James Madison himself, while he was not thrilled with the idea of a Bill of Rights, uh, but it was a promise made to get the Constitution ratified, he then took on the task of drafting and writing and leading to passage the Bill of Rights. So there was a little bit of honor. He understood the compromise, and he stood up for it. Yeah, yeah so fascinating. Such uh, such great insight. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've got uh, Scott Rasmussen, independent pollster, on the line with us. Uh, Scott's our, our good friend and colleague. Yeah, and as we, we talk through some of these uh, ideas and as you've been going through the Federalist Papers, uh, we'll have a separate discussion on why Hamilton gets the musical and Madison does the hard work and the heavy lifting and he gets nothing. Uh, we'll, we'll have a maybe a, a Madison Day uh, coming up where we can talk about that. But I, I want to jump to, to uh, just a little bit of that application in terms of the limited government uh, versus progressive, uh, expansive government. Uh, because you've you've seen that play out from a from a pollster position uh, over the course of uh, presidents of both political parties, uh, and and I love that you got to this uh, idea of there's these things called voters <laughs> who who start to persuade uh, as as you've watched different presidents adapt to modern polling. Uh, give us a couple of observations here. How does that Im- impacted the presidency in the United States? Well, it's impact about everything uh, in our political world. You know, at the, at the time of the drafting of the Constitution, the founders were looking for some balance, uh, you know, and it was a conscious effort to, to reach out to all sides. What's happened as presidents begin to follow polls, uh, sometimes they overreact to the mood of the moment. Sometimes they believe their own press. Um, and in some ways, having so much polling that out there, makes it harder for politicians to actually pay attention to voters. Uh, you know, if you went to the Bernie Sanders team, they would tell you that everybody in America loves this health care plan because they have polls showing you that uh, people like the idea of Medicare for all. They like a lot of his, his rhetoric. 
if you went to the Trump campaign, they would say yes, but only about 15 percent want to have their private health insurance replaced by a government program. Um, and so what's happened is sometimes when uh, people begin, presidents and others and their supporters begin to look at numbers, they forget to listen to people. Um, and that's, you know, really the the essence of uh, of trying to find a way to to address the voter concerns. Listen carefully, not just for whether they like your your rhetoric or not. Listen to what they are saying. Yeah, often it's getting down to that. Uh, I used to always call it the Wizard of Oz. It's the uh, you have to keep asking the why questions. And it's the because, because, right. because, because uh, is where you actually get to the real issues. Well, you know, and, and bluntly, uh, people who are you know, on, say, the Sanders campaign, a lot of them are, you know, really upset, but not everybody is supporting their man, and they get angry instead of really listening to try to understand what the other side is saying. Um, And conservatives do the same thing when they respond to Sanders supporters. Uh, You don't have to agree with someone to listen and understand that that they have a perspective that's worth hearing. Uh, And again, I go going back to this idea that the of the creation of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, James Madison didn't want a Bill of Rights, but he listened enough. He realized that was part of of building support. And I think there's something else in that that we've forgotten in today's world. Uh, Support doesn't mean winning one vote or one election. It means a belief in the legitimacy of the process. Uh, James Madison understood, as he listened and others listened, that you had to have both components, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, for to create a system, to create a society that people would feel good about and would have some trust in the constitutional government. Um, and if we don't seek that broader legitimacy, uh, you know, we've really lost something. And Boyd, I, this isn't where you were going, I don't think, but one of my pet peeves, and we're in the middle of it right now, is the primary election process. Uh, you know, prior to 1972, we didn't have these things the way they are today. Right. And prior to 1972, we frequently had landslide elections. In fact, for about 50 or 60 years, we had one at least every other election. Mm. Um, and why does that matter? Well, landslides are good because... They convey a sense of legitimacy on the government. Landslides are good because the losing side doesn't say, well, gee, if we'd just gone to Wisconsin, things would have been different. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's it's an acceptance of a a broader mandate. Since 1972, since we have gone to this system, we've had only one true landslide. That was Ronald Reagan in 1984. um, And that's creating a lot of the polarization in politics today. So we... It's, we have lost something when we, when we lose the stretch of the, the effort to seek to that uh, broader consensus. Yeah, fantastic. Scott Rasmussen, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Sources today. Great insight as always. Uh, we'll read your column tomorrow and uh, pick up some more polling real soon. Thanks so much. All right, we'll go ahead and step aside for bottom of the hour news. Uh, when we come back, more on this Washington's birthday edition of Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Stay with us right here on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone, to a special holiday edition of Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. It is always great to be with you and uh, 
Want to know what's going on in your world today? Shoot us a text on the uh, Utah Community Credit Union text line. 57500, again, 57500, Utah Community Credit Union, KSL text line. Uh, let me know what's going on in your world today. Uh, obviously, we've been focusing on the great presidents, uh, all the presidents. Uh, we have no perfect presidents, uh, never have, never will. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Scott Rasmussen uh, pointed out uh, that the the current uh, way that we are selecting uh, our uh, nominees on both the Democratic and the Republican side uh, has really been different since the 70s. And because of that, uh, our elections have been far less decisive, uh, which has created a lot more of that polarization problem. That's a really interesting angle. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms that really we've only had one landslide election uh, since then, which was, uh, of course, uh, President Reagan's uh, reelect, uh, where he just about won it all, almost did a clean sweep there. Uh, but as we as we look at the presidency uh, and those who have held that office, uh, there's a, a lot of interesting things to, to keep in mind. I want to share with you, I, I had the chance uh, just a couple of months ago to sit down with uh, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, if you had missed it last night on the History Channel, she's doing a three-part series on uh, George Washington. Really fascinating stuff, some really interesting insight there. Uh, but I asked her in all the presidents that she has studied and written about over the years, uh, what was it that uh, really allowed them to connect with the American people in a way that allowed them not only to win office, but then to actually do something while in office? Yeah, I think communication, obviously, between a leader and his people or the organization is a central ability to mobilize them to a common goal. And they all understood that more important than just communicating facts or figures or even just ideology was to tell people a story. For example, when Lincoln was trying to talk about slavery, his whole storytelling would be, this is where it came from. You talk about it historically. Here's where we are now. Here's where we need to go as a nation. And people asked him, why do you tell so many stories? He said, because people remember stories better than facts and figures. And if you look at any of Roosevelt's FDR's fireside chats, they would always tell a story at the first one he gave when there was a banking crisis and he had actually had to call a bank holiday to close all the banks. Right. So what does he do? He tells people who've taken their money out of the banks and they've got it under their mattress that he's now got some emergency legislation that he's passed will shore up the weaker banks. But he said, when you put money in a bank, it doesn't just sit there. That's why they don't have it when you start drawing it out. Right. It goes to mortgages and loans to make the economy go around. So I promise you now that because of this federal law that was passed, you'll be better off taking your money back than keeping it under your mattress. So the next day, after the banking holiday of a week was over, they were worried. What if they came in now and tried to take out even more? They were long lines. They panicked, but they were actually bringing their money back in satchels. So when you can tell a story that people understand, why did this happen and why are they safe now? Then it's a story that can, can motivate people. We're hardwired for stories. Think yeah. about the fact that in the old days, people before the written word would sit around a fire and one generation would talk to the other right. and tell what had happened. That's wisdom that's passed down over yeah. time. That's my uh, conversation with historian Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, talking about the presidency and about the ability of our presidents to tell stories, to connect with the American people in a unique way. Uh, I think it was interesting. The, one, one of the greatest uh, biographies I think I've read uh, was one that I really didn't anticipate being great. It was one called Lincoln, the biography of a writer. Uh, and that was, it really caught my attention because I had never really thought about it that way. But Lincoln really was the, the last president to do the bulk of his communication with the American people on his own through written word. 
Uh, and so uh, that biography is just really fascinating to see what influenced Lincoln as a writer, as a storyteller, uh, that again was uh, enabled him to to more effectively communicate with the American people and get people to buy in to do some really hard things. Uh, we were talking earlier in the program. If you happen to miss it, uh, obviously a lot of attention is being given to uh, Mayor Bloomberg right now. The amount of money that he is spending on these large advertising campaigns, including here in the state of Utah, leading up until uh, Super Tuesday. the The question to me is. Not can he get the name ID, not can he get some things going early. Uh, but the question is, will he ask the American people to do something? Will he tell a story in such a way and will he invite the American people, uh, starting with the Democrats, to engage in something? Because if people aren't engaged, uh, they're, they're just not there and the, and the support is just razor thin. Uh, we talked about this in terms of the gubernatorial race. Uh, we had covered last week that uh, the lieutenant governor, Spencer Cox, was the first to get his signatures in. So he is the first name that will be uh, on the governor line uh, in terms of the ballot in a June 30th primary for the Republicans. And to me, it wasn't so much that he's on the ballot. Uh, what caught my attention was that he did it through signatures but not paid for signature. This was not a signature company doing the work. This was an all-volunteer army. That tells me there are some supporters out there that are going to do hard things. Uh, So that's an interesting indicator. We'll see what happens with the other gubernatorial candidates. And do they have that kind of grassroots mobilization? Can they get people to feel fully invested and fully engaged? That's the ultimate test. All right, I want to take a minute right now and uh, go through, uh, we talked about the presidents as communicators. Uh, so we'll give you just a, a quick run through history here with uh, a few clips from uh, presidents through the ages uh, that might be memorable that sort of engage the American people. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere. And we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. By the words we speak and the faces we show the world, we force the spring, a spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and courage to reinvent America. Uh, Today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the vice president, to the governor of New York, to the director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. All right, there's a few uh, quick clips for you over the ages uh, from some of the important lines of uh, presidential administrations. And, and to me, it's always just fascinating to just see that the style can be so different. Uh, you, you take a, a President Clinton versus a President Obama versus a H.W. Bush. 
uh, all very different in terms of style, but each had a unique ability to connect with the American people uh, and each asked them to do something significant. And so regardless of where where you fall on the political spectrum, uh, the fact that this democracy is strong enough to endure a wide range of presidents with a a wide range uh, of capacities and abilities and weaknesses and flaws Uh, to me, is something worth celebrating in and of itself. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside. When we come back, uh, you don't want to miss this final segment today. Uh, We're going to talk about the fallacy of the indispensable, the ultimate lesson from George Washington. You don't want to miss this. Stay with us right here on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Final segment of Inside Sources on Washington's birthday. We're not going to buy into the uh, President's Day. We're not buying mattresses today. Sorry. Uh, But actually, it is true. On the federal books, it is still listed as Washington's birthday. They have allowed states to do what they want in terms of the name because really it's it's a three-day weekend for the federal employees uh, is where that all began. Uh, If you missed any of our segments earlier, uh, we had a great conversation with Scott Rasmussen, as always. And you can do that on the KSL News Radio app, sponsored by our friends at Any Hour Services. You can download that. Make sure you don't miss a single segment uh, as we move through the day. Uh, I want to wrap up uh, with uh, with Washington because it is uh, in honor of Washington's birthday. I know his actual birthday is on the 22nd, but uh, this is the federal holiday celebrating George Washington's birthday. And, and I want to get to an important lesson uh, from George Washington because I don't think he gets the credit. Uh, obviously, Hamilton's gotten a lot of credit uh, of late, but uh, this is the most important lesson from Washington is how do you say goodbye? How do you get past this idea of the irreplaceable, indispensable? uh, That's just a fallacy when it comes to politics. And I think it's one of the things that Washington taught us uh, better than anyone. Uh, You know, George Washington was an extraordinary leader, uh, among the greatest in human history, in my view. And following the Revolutionary War, uh, he had... He had access to ultimate power. Uh, He could have been, and a lot of Americans wanted him to be king. And many declared him to be the indispensable and irreplaceable man. And sadly, even in today's world, when uh, when men and women hear those kinds of uh, accolades of being indispensable, uh, they they start listening to that. Uh, I call it the siren song of Washington. Uh, they they hear these choirs of angels, and then they begin to believe it, and then they begin to act like it. Uh, Washington knew better. He rejected the throne of irreplaceability uh, while setting a standard for servant leadership in this nation that uh, we would do well to follow. You know, this is something that I saw in my business practice all the time, this fallacy of the irreplaceable. Uh, as a business consultant, I would I would hear executives say things like, oh, you know, Mary on our team, she's irreplaceable or or Steve. Steve is just indispensable. Uh, and whenever I heard that, I'd, it would make me nervous because I knew there might be a problem. And I would respond to those kind of statements by asking, well, you know, what would what would happen if Mary quit tomorrow? Or what if, you know, Steve tragically got hit by a bus on the way home from work? And interestingly, whenever I would make that statement, you know, what if what if Mary quits tomorrow? What if she gets a better job somewhere else? Uh, it usually drew a lot of very nervous laughter and a lot of uh, long, awkward moments of silence as people would look at their shoes uh, and then realize the risk they were under of having someone that was irreplaceable. Uh, it's irresponsible uh, to think that way. 
Now, that's not to say in any way, shape, or form that some people aren't harder to replace than others. Some people leave very big shoes to fill. That's fine. That's a good thing. But the the irreplaceable often becomes a restraining force in an organization. If you have one of those uh, irreplaceables, uh, you, you tend to look to them to do everything, to solve everything, to fix everything, to, to push the numbers through or to, to, to be the, uh, the answer to whatever the problem is from the board and so on. Uh, and sadly, sadly, the American people have really bought into this, uh, this indispensable leader syndrome that Washington just flat rejected. And here's how I know that's a problem in, in the country is because currently the United States Congress has an approval rating that hovers somewhere between 9% and 14%. Uh, that's really low, folks. <laughs> if your approval rating is between 9 and 14, that's not good. And yet, every election cycle, 94% of incumbents are reelected to office. That's a problem. We think they're irreplaceable. Even though we will complain and moan and whine about them, again, 9 to 14% approval rating is not real high. And yet we reelect them 94% of the time. And even despite a 2016 election cycle where we talked about draining the swamp, uh, the status quo has pretty much remained in Washington, D.C., and it's definitely remained in the House and the Senate. Very little has changed. You've had a few seats change back and forth, uh, but nothing really significant. And no changes, no changes at the leadership levels. Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer still rule the Senate. Nancy Pelosi is still the Speaker of the House. Uh, not a lot has changed. And, you know, to me, the uh, the important thing is that we, we really have to get past all of that. Because if we, if we do believe that our member of Congress or our party's president is irreplaceable, uh, that's, that's dangerous. That's where you end up with an imperial presidency, uh, where you have all the political pals and the pawns are all running around running the nation. Uh, and that's bad for everyday citizens. Uh, if you want any proof of that, just look at Venezuela. <laughs> uh, provides us a really good perspective where the irreplaceable leader turns to strongman and transforms into a dictator. It's not that far a step. And so if we here's the important message today. If we start to view political leaders as replaceable, they will be. And elections will become less consequential to our lives because we will make the government less consequential in our lives. And that's what we've got to get to. Uh, During my time in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite things to do was uh, walk through the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, And usually it was very late at night. And that's a, a beautiful, powerful place. And I would always stop there in the rotunda and spend a few minutes looking at that majestic painting of George Washington resigning his commission. And I'll tell you, in the uh, the quiet and the stillness of an empty rotunda, uh, you can hear and you can sense and you can know this principle that made Washington an authentic and a truly extraordinary leader because he knew he was replaceable and he wanted the American people to know that he was replaceable. And that they should never look to anyone as irreplaceable. Because that's not good for we the people. And so while today is President's Day here in Utah, Washington's birthday is what it should be. uh, And we should celebrate that for sure. But the real day I think we should celebrate as a nation is actually December 23rd, 1783. 
and it's the day uh, that I noted. Uh, we should study that. We should look at that. Because in the ultimate act of servant leadership, that's the day, December 23rd, 18, or 1783, that George Washington resigned his commission before the Continental Congress. Uh, it's really, it's one of the few instances in history when the commander of the conquering forces did not assume complete authority, control, and power, but instead returned it to the citizens and to their representatives. So this is what George Washington understood that I think a lot of our leaders, not just in politics, but in business and in our communities, uh, that they've really forgotten. Washington clearly understood that power is not something to amass or barter with or cling to. It's not a tool for pursuing political purposes and self-promotion. And while many proclaimed him to be indispensable and irreplaceable, Washington knew. Washington understood that the future of the nation was not dependent on him, and it couldn't be dependent on him. He believed America's destiny would be secured down through the ages by individual citizens who would enter the world stage, make a contribution in their homes, in their communities, in their country, and then move on. That's the way it's supposed to be. Because it's individual Americans living and applying indispensable truths and irreplaceable principles. That's what actually guarantees that America will remain a nation indivisible with liberty, justice, and opportunity for all of us. And to me, that's the message of Washington's birthday today is come in, do your part, make a difference, and move on. Because it's the fallacy of the irreplaceable that always gets us into trouble as a nation. Happy Washington's birthday. From KSL News Radio, Inside Sources, I am Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor at the Deseret News. And as always, as you go out into the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something today that'll make a difference. <laughs>